what do you call someone who puts on a show to look good, but that outward look does not truly reflect what's going on in their heart? Maybe pretentious, a poser, a hypocrite, a politician. <laughs> uh, and a Christian today might even call someone like that a Pharisee. Well, today's gospel reading helps us understand why the term Pharisee has received such a negative connotation. In their time, however, they were seen as serious, pious believers working to push back against the secularizing forces of Greek culture, which was called Hellenism. Um, as we continue our series today on Matthew, we'll see Jesus call out what we now call a pharisaical mindset in the religious leaders of his time, the priests, scribes, elders, and Pharisees. But first, a little background, or as we like to call it here at Second Baptist. All right, thank you. Um, so let's, let's kind of wind back a little bit. Two days before today's scripture reading, on Palm Sunday, Jesus makes the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, starting the final week of his life before he's crucified. The crowds excitedly welcome him as the Messiah. They were electrified with messianic fervor. I mean, they are fired up. He's riding on a colt in fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. They're yelling and cheering, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. They're spreading cloaks and palms on the ground for him to ride over. They believe he is gonna be their deliverer, overthrowing the Romans. He's the hero and the crowd is with him. And then, he goes into the temple and angrily drives out the money changers and the vendors. So at this point, the Jewish leaders are not happy with this whole situation. The priest's sweet side deal of collecting the temple rent from all the vendors and money changers has blown up, was blown up by Jesus yesterday. His sermons have severely challenged their status quo. Their people are enthusiastic about and look up to this Jesus. This wandering carpenter, everyone is claiming to be the Messiah, doesn't abide by and even challenges their legalistic rules and assumptions. This so-called Messiah could upset their established but delicate relationship with the Roman overlords. Bottom line, he's messing up our gig and he's an imposter, but he's got the people fired up and with him. We need to take them out for our good and the good of the people who aren't as pure or smart as us. So the next day, um, we're kind of winding forward to the beginning of our scripture, but just before we get to our scripture, and I'm going to review what Pastor Joe talked about a couple weeks, um, uh, Jesus comes back to the temple. The chief priests and elders directly confront them and challenge his authority. And in verse 23, we read, by what authority are you doing these things, they asked. Who gave you this authority? But to no avail, Jesus responds to their questions with his own challenging question that traps them in their own game. Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. 
John's baptism, where does it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, hmm, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from human origin, we are afraid the people of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. The correct answer to Jesus' question, which the religious leaders refused to answer, was that John's authority was from God, and therefore they should be repenting. They should also be acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah that John was heralding. Up to this point in his ministry, Jesus had a few run-ins with the religious leaders, but that wasn't his main focus. Uh, the time wasn't right. Most of his previous ministry time and energy were spent on healing and preaching the good news and discipling his followers. Now he knows that time is running out and the religious leaders are actively plotting to take him out. The long simmering conflict, and this has been building for a while, between him and these leaders is coming to its critical conclusion with his death on the cross in the very near future. So he pushes back hard on these stubborn and hypocritical uh, leaders who are rejecting him and getting in the good way of his good news reaching God's people. He's gonna die soon and is about to give a final warning of God's impending judgment on these leaders for rejecting him. So that brings us to today's scripture where Jesus tells two parables directly aimed at the religious leaders speaking to him. And I think you've got to step back and look at the intensity of this scene. So Jesus now has come back after he kind of threw, threw the temple into disarray the day before. The priests are angry. They're fired up. The crowds are ecstatic. So this is not a quiet little discussion. This is a high-intensity confrontation. And Jesus kind of is, is obviously driving and controlling this situation. And he starts, as he always does, with his parables. It kind of forces, he tells a message, but indirectly in a way they have to think about it. So the first parable, the parable of the two sons, is Jesus' immediate follow-up to the questioning of his authority by the religious leaders. While he doesn't directly answer their question, he does give his answer in this parable. What do you think? A man has two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes will go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. So in this parable, so let, let's, let's parse this out a little bit. In this parable, the father represents God and the vineyard represents his kingdom. The first son who said no, then changed his mind, represents those who lived an ungodly life outside of God's will but then repented and believed in Jesus, the tax collectors and the prostitutes. The second son, 
who said yes, but didn't do his father's request, represents these Jewish leaders who outwardly demonstrated godliness and publicly professed a desire to follow him, to follow God's will, but rejected John's call to repentance and ultimately rejected Jesus. So let's go back to that confrontation with John with the Pharisees and Sadducees back in Matthew 4, uh, verses 7 to 10. But when he, that's John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. These leaders assumed because they were sons of Abraham, that's the God's chosen people, the Jews, and were scrupulous followers of the law, they were clearly the ones who would be part of God's kingdom and not these other sinners. In their mind, the tax collectors and the prostitutes were the lowest of the low in terms of righteousness and holiness. Both John the Baptist and Jesus were making it very clear that a repentant heart and fruitful action for God's kingdom were what counted, not their Jewish lineage and religi religiosity, not the show, but the go. The religious leaders' hearts were unrepentant. They believed they were following God, but their religiosity was all show. We should note that Jesus says that the tax collectors and the prostitutes will enter the kingdom before, not instead, of the religious leaders. So despite their past attitudes, they still have a chance to repent and follow Jesus. And uh, Nicodemus uh, was a good example of a Pharisee who rightly considered Jesus a teacher who has come from God and honestly sought answers from him. So was Joseph of Arimathea and Saul. They were also Pharisees who ultimately became followers of Jesus. In this first parable, Jesus is calling out and accusing these leaders for their failure to lead God's kingdom faithfully by not repenting, not bearing fruit, and most importantly, not acknowledging him as the Messiah, the Son of God that John foretold. In the next parable we're going to read now, the parable of the tenants, he sentences them. In verse 33, Jesus said, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. So in this parable, the master represents God and the vineyard represents Israel. The tenants represent the Jewish leaders whom God has entrusted with stewarding his chosen people to do God's will. When the season of fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent another ser other servants, more than the first, and they did the same thing to them. The servants sent by the master represented God's prophets, sent to Israel throughout the Old Testament, who were repeatedly mistreated and ignored. 
Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. I think we've all figured out that the master's son, who is finally sent, represents Jesus, who the religious leaders won't listen to and plot to kill. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who give him the fruits in their seasons. God has been patiently waiting for his followers under the stewardship of these religious leaders to produce the fruit he requires in the form of good deeds, change hearts, and faithfulness. But they've let him down by focusing on the religious external demonstrations and pronouncements instead. God's purposes will not be thwarted. He will raise up new leaders who will produce the fruit the original ones failed to provide. Jesus is actually foreshadowing what God's activ- that God's activity is going to shift from Jewish to Gentile realms and that Christ's church will replace Israel. So Jesus said to them, have you, ever, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, up to this point in the parable, while not recognizing that Jesus represents the Son, the leaders are actually tracking with Jesus and even answer his, correct, his question correctly in verse 41, which actually accuses them. When Jesus is quoting Psalm 118 in that previous verse, he's making a veiled reference to himself as the Messiah whom they are rejecting. And this is his final. He said, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The kingdom of God will be taken away from the Jewish leaders and Jews who reject Jesus and given to Gentiles and Jews who put faith in Jesus and follow him. Jesus will soon be killed, but like the stone, he will subsequently be honored and inflict damage on those who have opposed him. God's judgment and destruction is coming on the temple and these leaders. Now, Jesus is an anti-authority, as some like to portray him. Instead, he is saying he's going to raise up new leaders, Jew and Gentile, to replace these corrupt Jewish leaders who have failed to lead Israel. Those who reject him will now be broken by him in the future. So when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. From this final verse of our reading, we see that it is now sinking into the chief priests and the Pharisees that this parable is aimed at them. However, Jesus' words are not impacting most of them to a change of heart. Instead, they stay hard-hearted. They must have been seething with anger at being publicly called out like this by Jesus and would have liked to arrest him on the spot and put him to death. But at that moment, the crowd thought Jesus was a prophet and were still wildly enthusiastic about him. 
the leaders dare not make their move now. It would cause a riot and have the Roman authorities step in and clamp down on everyone. And next week, this dramatic confrontation will continue with the parable of the king's wedding banquet. So stay tuned. <laughs> so, um, in hindsight, it's easy to see how the Pharisees got their bad name. They act as if they were devout followers of God, but reject John the Baptist's call for repentance and refuse to truly follow Jesus, God's son. Oh, those Pharisees, what hypocrites. All show, no go. But we contemporary Christians can slow, so easily slip into being Pharisees about the Pharisees. Maybe we need to take the log out of our own eye and take a look at our own hearts and our own actions. <clears throat> Do we display all the trappings of Christianity? We wear our crosses, go to church, use Christian lingo and quote Bible passages, listen to Christian radio and watch TV preachers, but have no fruit to show for it? Do we follow him when it's convenient, but deny him when it's uncomfortable and unpopular? Do we actually seek to follow Christ and be more like him? Do we resist our worldly desires, avoid compromising situations, and repent regularly? Or do we comfortably continue in behaviors and attitudes that contradict God's word? Do we exhibit the fruit of the Spirit to those around us? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, or the opposite? Are we abiding in Christ that we may bear fruit through prayer, heartfelt worship, repentance, and reading his word? Or are we just going through the Christian motions with a joyless heart? Do we love our neighbors and our enemies who are all made in the image of God, <clears throat> even if they don't share our beliefs or if they persecute us? Do we love each other in this church, our brothers and sisters in Christ, even when we disagree with or are frustrated by them? Do we share the good news with those around us who don't know it? Do we look after the widows and orphans? Do we care for the sick, the hungry, the prisoner, and the stranger? I asked a lot of hard questions there. But we need to reflect on that. I'm challenging all of us, including myself, to reflect on how well we are actually walking the talk. In our hectic and distracted lives, it is so easy to get disconnected from the vine of Christ and slip into a comfortable and hollow religious pretense, no longer bearing fruit, just like the Pharisees. In the kingdom, Performance takes precedence over promises, action over words, less show, more go. Fruit is sweeter than religiosity. James makes, James makes this point very clearly in chapter 2 of his letter. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, 
but actually does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, sometimes this verse gets misinterpreted, saying that we are saved by our good works. So let me be very clear. We are saved by putting our faith in Jesus, not by our works. Jesus' death on the cross paid for our sins, and we are saved by that amazing act of redemption once we put our faith in Christ. However, what James and Matthew are telling us is that truly putting our faith in Christ includes repentance and dying to our old self, which is a process, and then out of that should flow good works. Following him should result in a changed heart with good fruit and deeds. Maybe not all at once, but growing over time. And remember, there are many ways to bear fruit, and it doesn't look the same in every person. We all have different walks and have been given different gifts of the Spirit. Paul sums this up well in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift from God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, creating Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace, love, and mercy. May your Holy Spirit give us the strength to be your faithful workers in your kingdom, producing the fruit you desire and growing as your disciple, as disciples of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.